Simple Beep, Episode 63, Mysterium and More Emoji. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And we've got a couple of topics in this episode that are kind of like big follow-up topics. Uh, one of them is a really big follow-up topic going way, way back to one of our early episodes about Mist, but... The one that's more recent is follow-up. Uh, we kind of knew that there would be a lot of follow-up on our most recent episode about Easter eggs hidden in Apple Emoji. And in fact, we did get a lot of follow-up on it. And so we will get to that in just a moment. First, we have a couple of smaller, normal size follow-up items. First, to address our previous episode about Emoji Easter eggs without going into Emoji themselves, our timing of the episode release what could have been a little closer to the actual World Emoji Day, but as it turns out, we did release it the same weekend as the Emoji Movie premiered, so at least we had that going for it. That That is highly unfortunate, because World Emoji Day is far better than the Emoji Movie. I think saying it was universally panned is not an exaggeration. It's at 8% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, one of the things that we mentioned in... That and regarding World Emoji Day and the choice of the date for it is that it's based on the Apple Calendar emoji, which is in itself an Easter egg because it's uh, the date on the calendar is the date of the announcement of the iCal application. And we had linked to that keynote in the show notes for last episode and did a timestamp link right to the part where Steve Jobs talks about iCal itself. But then I went back and I looked at the uh, the entire keynote, or perhaps you opened it up and uh, didn't go to the timestamp. And I noticed that something funny about that keynote is that the, the beginning of that keynote is uh, a demonstration of the Switch campaign, and it starts with a complete cold open for the entire keynote is the Ellen Feiss commercial from the Switch campaign. Uh, something else, which of course got lots of uh, negative media attention, but it's pretty funny that like before anyone comes on stage, it's just like lights down and then Ellen Feiss. <laughs> <laughs> One little thing that I did not know about that, you know, that little piece of Apple lore. Our next bit of follow-up comes from listener Paul Mather. He sent us on Twitter the box art for the original SimCity game and said uh, it kind of called to mind the Big City Newton concept we talked about a couple of episodes ago that uh, was kind of like the body of the Newton geared towards video game enthusiasts that had a city skyline and uh, the words Big City at the top of the the actual hardware. And yeah, the box art for SimCity, the original SimCity, kind of looks like a handheld device the um the screen area is showing a skyscraper with a tornado destroying it it's san francisco oh yeah there's the transamerica yep, yeah it's it's being destroyed by a tornado because they get lots of those in uh in northern california <laughs> oh, i didn't even notice that the first time that's great and of course at the top of the box and therefore the handheld depicted on the box is a giant sim city not quite big city but uh the parallels are very clear yeah it's it's a cool piece of retro box art and the uh it's like demonstrating how you would create a game that could be like SimCity if it was completely analog but of course the joke is that it's a computer game and finally one piece of interesting news that's happened since we last recorded that uh i suppose is follow up for earlier episodes and also ties in with our topic for this episode is a, another major release of Macintosh software on the Internet Archive for in-browser emulation. And the thing that was one of the big titles that was missing from the original dump of Macintosh software onto the Internet Archive was HyperCard. And I, in one respect, that made sense because HyperCard was a first-party Apple application, and they probably didn't want to just throw it on there without asking. Uh, but they have now included HyperCard on the Internet Archive and lots and lots of stacks, something like two gigabytes of various HyperCard stacks that you can go and run right in your browser. And this definitely has the like unofficial, if not totally official, blessing of Apple because there was a blog post that we'll link in the show notes 
explaining how they went about this archiving process and what HyperCard meant to some of the people who worked on the project for the Internet Archive. And that blog post went on the Internet Archive site. And like later the day that it was posted, Phil Schiller retweeted it. So it's like, I, I think that that is a pretty good indication that Apple is cool with people sharing their memories of HyperCard, not just talking about it, not just showing screenshots, but actually using the software through emulation. And there's even a site that's available that's hooked up to the Internet Archive in some way where you can actually submit your own HyperCard stacks. And I guess the notion is if you have HyperCard stack files laying around and you haven't been able to use them or open them, you can upload them through the site and then do the in-browser emulation. It'll work for you. I haven't played around with it myself because I don't actually have a whole lot of stack files easily accessible. And I think the notion is that you are submitting them to the Internet Archive, so I think they become public, um, or maybe there are some options for that. But it's pretty interesting that not only is this uh, this isn't just like a tiny little walled garden or here, here's a blank copy of HyperCard, hit new stack, and then when you close your browser window, it goes away forever. They're giving people the option to use this like a, you know, kind of like a full-fledged piece of software. Yeah, the this submission website software is, according to its credits, developed by Andrew Ferguson. However, Stephen Cole, who runs VintageAppleMac.com and its associated Patreon that we discussed earlier, is uh, given special thanks in the credits. So it's clear that he at least had some influence, if not some direct help. Very cool. And the blog post from the Internet Archive, I think, definitely mentioned Mist as being perhaps the most famous thing that was ever created in HyperCard. Asterisk, HyperCard plus a whole lot of hacks to get all the you know the quick time and the color and everything in. Um, and then it was eventually bundled and released as its own more proprietary software, but that HyperCard legacy is there. And we'll get to that after we deal with our other huge follow-up topic, which is everything we missed in the world of Apple Emoji. Um, Hopefully everything. The first one was actually pretty funny. (laughs) We finished recording the show, uh, we signed off, we said goodnight, and we woke up the next morning. And between the time that we had recorded and released... And John Gruber had tweeted, hey, am I the last person to notice that the race car emoji has the Swift logo on it? And we went, nope, you are not the last person because we did not see that. (laughs) Yeah. And I know exactly why I didn't see this is because I've skipped the section because you would expect that the race car emoji would be in there with like the regular car and the truck and the taxi and all of those, right? It's a car. But no, the race car emoji is in the sports section. And so it's like sandwiched between, you know, somebody lifting weights and somebody riding a horse. And I was skimming through that section very quickly because I didn't expect that in those where it's basically just uh, depictions of people with uh, generic, you know, the generic type of equipment that you would use for a given sport, you know, volleyball or soccer or mountain climbing or horseback riding or whatever. I didn't think that there would be really any opportunities to put in Easter eggs, but because of the way that the Unicode space is organized, the race car is in there. And indeed, because race cars are fast, it has the little swift bird logo on the side. And then even more, On the two tires that you can see because the car is in profile, it says Swift, like it's the little brand of the tires. Very detailed, and we totally missed it. (laughs) So yeah, that was a big one that we missed. Uh, But there are some smaller ones that fit into categories that we talked about that we also missed, and uh, nobody called us out on them. So these, these ones were a little bit less obvious. One that I thought that was pretty interesting, we were looking for references to Cupertino and also references to John Appleseed. And I don't think I explained last episode the, you know, the pun of John Appleseed, especially for listeners who might be outside of the US, who might think that John Appleseed is just like, oh, it's just like a generic name that Apple came up with that has the word Apple in it. And John is a common name. But of course, that's also a reference to the historical figure of Johnny Appleseed. That was his nickname. His real name was John Chapman. And he was kind of an American pioneer figure 
who went across many of the Midwest states and Plains states in the United States uh, and planted lots of apple orchards, earning him his name. So instead of using his name exactly, the character that Apple uses is John Appleseed. But we're on the lookout for his name, and it appears in many places. It's on the cover of notebooks and signed on letters and things like that. One place I didn't think that it would turn up, though, is on a fake dollar bill, which it absolutely does. So there are emoji for different currencies, and there's one for the U.S. dollar, and there's sort of a mocked-up fake U.S. dollar. And on the front of U.S. currency, there's a signature because it's it, I, I believe it's the like Secretary of the Treasury. Whenever the bill is printed, their signature appears on the bill to say like you know this is official. And where that signature would be is the name John Appleseed. Very very small. The rest of the design of the bill is actually fairly faithful. You can even see um, some of the words "the United States of America." It's covered over by the little band that's holding together the stack of bills in the emoji. But you can see that, and that's accurate. But then it also says in two places where you wouldn't expect to see a city name on U.S. currency, it says Cupertino, both on the left and on the right. So both of those are hiding in the little currency emoji. Also, if you've uh, ever used the little money with wings flying away emoji because you've, I don't know, bought an Apple product or something and your your wallet is much lighter, <laughs> Um it uses the same art, and it looks like they've put like a 3D transform on it. Uh, and so that also features the same text in both of those locations. It's it's uh, American money that's flying away, not uh, not pounds or yen or euros. So that's a certain case. The next one I saw, because I don't know, I, I was going a little bit crazy about this stuff, I think, after looking for every possible thing that I could have missed. This one I'm not certain on. I would like people's opinion. I believe that there's another John Appleseed reference on the package emoji, so like a shipping box. But so so that box has it's just like a cardboard box with tape over it and some of those like you know fragile and this side up logos, those are totally legible. And then there's the mailing label on there. And at the resolution that these are shipped as part of the emoji font, it's impossible to tell, but I think that it is addressed to John Appleseed, and then there's a QR code and an address. But at whatever size the art was produced at, those were probably completely legible, but they've been shrunk down now and are not really legible anymore. It's just going to have to remain a mystery. But I, I tend to agree with you. I think it's addressed to John Appleseed, and I bet that that is a QR code at its original size. It goes to apple.com or something. You know it does. <laughs> yeah. Or it's a map to one infinite loop or something like that. Mm, mm -hmm. Another one, uh, another category that we covered with the emoji was the special times that would appear on clocks uh, and watches and different timepieces. And the two times that were special to Apple were uh, 10.09 for the watch. That's their sort of idiosyncratic way of displaying uh, a watch hand that they think is aesthetically pleasing. And then also 941, which is uh, thought to be the exact time, local time, that the iPhone was unveiled. And uh, one place that the, a clock appears that you might not expect is on the school or like schoolhouse emoji. And it's a depiction of a building with a clock above its front door. And uh, that one does, sure looks like it's set to 941. So a mismatch for all of the other analog clocks, but still in fitting, uh, still a deliberate choice, not just a, a haphazard placement of the hour and minute hands. Yeah, I wonder if this is going to be updated, if the 1009 time is supposed to be some kind of standard across all analog clock face emoji, and this one kind of slipped through the cracks, or if it's got to be the one analog clock face that still references the special time. Because I think the other references we found were uh, printed out in the numerals, like on the ticket. Right, yeah. All of the 941 references were uh, in text, as opposed to actually depicting a watch face or a clock face. Moving on to some more emoji, another category we discussed were uh, kind of regional emoji that depicted Apple's place 
in Northern California, whether it's Cupertino, San Francisco, the greater Bay Area. And so some of you might have seen these and said like, oh, of course, but we just want to be completionists here. These are two emoji of, uh, the first one is officially named Foggy, and the second is named Bridge at Night. So they're fairly generic titles in the Unicode spec, but Apple has chosen to use the Golden Gate Bridge in both of them. Foggy shows one of the Golden Gate Bridge's towers surrounded by the uh, typical San Francisco fog. It's Carl. It's Carl the Fog, yeah. And uh, Bridge at Night shows the same tower of the Golden Gate Bridge at night. With a clear starry sky behind it, which happens occasionally in San Francisco. And then these next two may be a stretch. They're the emoji for railway car and mountain railway uh, trains. And again, these are generic titles. There's no guidance on what the, the, the train cars should look like. But there is a bit of similarity between how Apple has rendered both of these emoji and the F line of San Francisco streetcars that kind of goes down Market Street and the Embarcadero and are still like kind of charmingly the old world streetcars instead of modern, uh, like sleek public transportation train cars or the very San Francisco trolley cable cars. It's this special line in between. And so we'll, we'll put a link to San Francisco's F line in the show notes. You can compare them to the railway car and mountain railway emoji on your Apple device. You kind of leave it up to yourself whether you think this was deliberate or maybe just a, a slight inspiration. Yeah, I think maybe just someone from San Francisco was asked to draw a train car, and so you know, they, they drew what they knew. <laughs> um, one interesting thing, I have these blown way up, as you need to do to search for these Easter eggs, and it's clearly the same piece of like base artwork on these two railway cars, but on the one that's the mountain railway, it has the mountains in the background, but it also has reflections of mountains in the window that are not there on the standard railway car. Apple really sweats the details on these. The the non-mountain railway car has like little rivets in its lower third and the mountain doesn't. So they are different, but I think like the color schemes and general makeup are similar. One other thing that we noted was that Apple loves to put their own products or their own spin on products in the emoji that they use. And there are three of the emoji in the symbols category that comes sort of towards the end that regard cell phones, cell phone usage, that kind of thing. So uh, they're called no mobile phones, vibration mode, and mobile phone off. And all of these have slightly different outlines, but they're all clearly iPhone outlines. And it seems like the size and weight of the outline is kind of uh, changed to better fit the the outline of the overall symbol. And I guess you know, maybe someday soon these will have to be changed. As we record this, it's been just a week or so since uh, some scandalous iPhone outlines have been unearthed in the uh, HomePod firmware, leading to uh, much speculation about future iPhones. But we're here to talk about past iPhones. One final thing, um, I think you put this in our outline, Brian, is just says peach emoji drama in the iOS 10.2 betas. Um, the peach emoji is one of those emoji that's used for multiple purposes, uh, the primary purpose of which is not to represent a piece of fruit. And uh, they changed it to look really just like a piece of fruit in uh, the iOS 10.2 beta last year. People got upset and they changed it back so it looks like a butt. Call it like it is. <laughs> That's what people use it for. And um, I actually wrote a Pico Mac about this, and uh, I'll link to that. One of the things I think, you know, just to round out discussion of emoji is that it's interesting. We can go in here and we can look for these tiny, tiny Easter egg details because on Apple devices, there is one set of emoji, pretty much. Um, I, I guess some certain apps, like maybe Facebook or Twitter, you can set it to display their own emoji. But as you're typing, as you're using the system keyboard, that kind of thing, you're only seeing one flavor of emoji, and that means that there are these opportunities to put these Easter eggs in. But one of the things, you know, when people get upset about minor differences, 
when Apple changes the emoji set, it's like a permanent change for the platform as it goes forward. It's it's interesting that there is only that one view and that we don't have like font variation within a single device. And that was that was what the Pico Mac was about. Uh, you know, it would make sense that if we can change the font for writing plain text, that we would be able to change to a different style or a variation for emoji, but we aren't there yet. Okay, that wraps up massive follow-up and follow-up topic of emoji. So let's head into this episode's main topic, which is Mysterium. And if you've been listening for a long time, more than two years, you may have some vague memory of what this is. Uh, if you go back to episode 16, we did an episode entirely dedicated to Myst and much of the surrounding culture and games. Uh, and just to you know, give a quick recap of that, of course, you can go back and listen to the full episode if you're interested. But to give a quick recap, you know, Myst is one of the classic all-time Mac games. It was developed by Cyan in HyperCard to be this point-and-click adventure and puzzle game where you had to solve your way out of this world. There was no like high-paced action. There was nobody coming to kill you. It was just sort of a man-versus-world adventure trying to escape Mist Island, going through the various different uh, ages that you transported to by going through books. And this is the whole mythology around the Mist world, and then the sequels, Riven, and I don't know, there were five more sequels, I think, eventually over time. Uh, And the thing is that, you know, there are people who are still huge fans of Mist, just like, you know, just like any kind of video game or pop culture property, there are going to be the diehards. And especially when uh, the company is still going on and invested in it in some way and creating new projects, creating side projects. Uh, it's something that people stick with. And one of the ways that people have stuck with Mist is through the Mysterium conference or convention, which I believe happens annually. And we mentioned it in that episode a couple of years ago, like, oh yeah, this is a thing that happens. But then it turns out, Brian, you went to Mysterium this year. I did. Yes, Mysterium has happened every year since 2000. And uh, that first year was in Spokane, Washington, which is also the home of Cyan. And it's moved around the country. And I don't know, I don't remember why I looked it up this summer, but I did. And it was in Orlando this year. And I recently moved to the greater Orlando area. Um, So yeah, no reason not to go if I'm this close. Uh, So yeah, just to recap, it's an annual conference that celebrates the, or at least was originally dedicated to celebrating the Myst games and the greater universe that unifies all the Myst games of the the Denis world. But as I overheard one of the conference organizers (laughs) say this year, they're really trying to now bridge the gap between Myst and its greater world and Cyan's new project, Abduction. And we'll get to abduction a little bit later. Uh, But yeah, I went to day two of the conference this year. They set aside pretty much a full Friday and a full Saturday and like Thursday night check-ins, Sunday morning brunch and closing remarks. Uh, So I really saw about half of it. And I went on the big day with a lot of uh, speakers and presentations. So you sent me a couple photos from, and like, I just got the impression of like, yeah, this is a convention with panels in like typical hotel ballrooms kind of kind of set up so it made me think of like okay this is what you would get if instead of like a massive like comic con you just like plucked one or two like panels or panel groups out of that and just like put them in their own hotel by themselves right yeah actually that's a pretty good way to summarize it you'd get the same like intense dedication to the expanded universe. Like there's only so much you can glean about the missed world from playing the game, but through sequels or through the books that we also talked about in that episode, you can flesh out the, the kind of like secondary characters, the way they speak, the way they dress. And so there were some people who really embodied that at this conference. It, it was very much like photos of comic-con that I've seen where people 
really understand their favorite character and fully embody that character as they attend. Was anybody cosplaying? Uh, I think there were two to three people in full, like, Denis garb. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. Just trying to get a sense of, you know, what this actually turns out to be. Some, what, I mean, we're here almost 25 years after the release of Mist. Yeah. And you mentioned photos that I sent. One of them was th- to speak even more to people who really understand the expanded universe. There is a language that these missed linking books are written in the Denis language. And I guess through, I don't know, through the books or through, maybe it was all community generated or someone from Cyan weighed in. There's a full Denis alphabet and grammar, like with, with different verb tenses and everything. And uh, one of the attend uh, one of the attendees translated the menu of the nearby Red Robin fully into Denis, like numbers representing prices, uh, letters to letters, and everything. It was incredible. That that's that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's, there's no other words for that. I mean, I taught a course on conlangs when I was in grad school, and I I looked for information on the Denis language because I knew that it existed from having played Mist and reading the novels and information was few and far between. I have, I have no idea how this person got to the point of being able to say hamburger in Denis. Yeah. Uh, they had a, a very thick binder that had not only uh, like an alphabet matching letter to letter and number to number, uh, but like I said, like verb tenses and uh, like unique vocabulary for things that might only exist in the world of the Denis and not here. Uh, I think I might've taken one or two photos of it, but so yes, somewhere there exists a very complete reference to the language. Wow. If, if it's just that person carrying that around, we, we need to get that on the internet archive. That is important. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so getting back to the conference, kind of a nice transition from there. It seems that there are a couple of, uh, just like fun events that bring all these members of the community together and you can play games with each other. You can uh, work on certain puzzles or activities together. And so a lot of the kickoff for some of these was on Friday, the day that I missed. So I got to pick up some of the materials, but everyone had either finished the puzzles or gotten like way too much of a head start for me to even be competitive. But some of them uh, that it seems like they do every year are things like marker missions. The marker switches in the original Mist game play a very pivotal role in not only you finding out how to uh, explore more of the game, but spoiler alert, it's also how you reach the, the final stage of the game. And it's, it sounds like every year they do some kind of marker switch mission where the organizers hide little uh, totems around the hotel. And so I, I showed up on day two, like I said, and a lot of them were already claimed. Uh, but one of the organizers took me aside and said, like, I'll put some more out there if you want to look for them. <laughs> they were very, uh, this is where I should also say, everyone there was very nice. Like some of the friendliest people I've ever met, uh, willing to talk about anything, willing to share stuff they had learned or created. Uh, everyone there was very, very nice. There were many more puzzles. I think there was some kind of unofficial theme um, to this year's conference about the Mysterium Travel Agency. So uh, someone or, uh, involved with organizing the conference had made gorgeous travel posters for some of the worlds from Mist or the islands from Riven or the worlds from Mist 3 through 5 or Abduction. Um, kind of in the style of like, I think every once in a while, those NASA travel posters kind of make their way around the internet that's like discover mars in a in a kind of old-timey style and there were uh like search puzzles or different like unscramble word ciphers that had clues hidden in the travel posters all very well thought out to the same degree very much as a missed game really wow it sounds like people put just a ton of time and passion into creating this so you were a first timer were were there other first timers or is this like is this the core group that's hung on since 2000? I think the majority is a core group that's been there for most if not all of them, but I was pretty sure that uh, a dad and his son who were staying in the hotel and had no idea what it was like kind of peeked their heads in and registered on the spot and just kind of sat in for one or two of the sessions. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so I mentioned 
the puzzles, uh, they have social activities, the marker switch missions. Another activity that I think happens every year is called What Would Atris Build? Um, a lot of things in Mist are are kind of known for being like complex Rube Goldbergy puzzles. And uh, there's a famous kind of near the end puzzle in the third Mist game that involves uh, like a human sized marble run where you have to get inside the marble and have solved enough puzzles correctly beforehand so that when you go through the marble run, you get deposited in the correct space. And I remember the one time I played through Mist 3, this is about where I gave up. But uh, taking that into account, as well as their location in Orlando this year, the What Would Atris Build segment was uh, What Would Atris Build if he was put in charge of designing an amusement park with roller coasters? And uh, it was really fun watching them uh, build a whole bunch of like with using pool noodles cut in half as the tracks for some marbles, the kind of intricate and uh, with with all with Easter eggs to different mist related items. Uh, the roller coasters they built it was a lot of fun. Very cool. So what about uh, what about stuff from the games themselves or discussion of the history of mist or what it has led to at this point? Yeah, I'll talk about the three kind of panels that I saw on day two. The first was a brief discussion with documentarian Philip Shane, who, if you have seen any of his work, it's probably the Being Almo documentary that came out a while ago uh, that it interviewed the the voice and puppeteer of Sesame Street's Almo. But uh, he's also done a bunch of other work and uh, is currently working with Cyan uh, he was filming almost constantly during the Mysterium conference. He wouldn't tell us what it was about, and he said it won't be coming out for a couple of years. But he did say he, it, either he, I forget if it was he, or the work is definitely inspired by the making of movies that were included with Mist and Riven. So maybe look forward to that. I'll be in the background looking probably confused as I try to figure out the puzzles. Um, something I think that really justifies this conference in happening every year is a panel with Cyan itself. This year it happened over a video chat and it included Rand Miller, who is a co-founder and also the actor who plays, uh, Atris and a handful of other Cyan employees ranging from the producer for abduction to a couple engineers and developers, uh, some of their art team, uh, QA, very well represented. And uh, Rand took the lead on a lot of the Q&A answers, but uh, would definitely kick it out to the team for a bunch of them. One of the first questions from the, uh, the convention was, what games influenced you? And I thought this was hilarious because Rand answered Zork, the kind of the text uh, roguelike adventure. And when he kicked it out to the rest of Cyan, almost everyone else said missed as in they played the game and then decided to join the company later, which I thought was just really fantastic. Yeah. I was just looking at the links you put in our outline uh, to bios of these people uh, like staff bios on the Cyan website. And yeah, pretty much all of the people who are working on the new projects are young artists, young developers, um, maybe younger than us. And then, of course, there's Rand Miller, who's not not particularly old, but is certainly uh, a generation ahead of us. And but it's really fascinating that Cyan, as a company, has you know this continuity with Rand Miller. I don't know where Robin Miller is at this point. He, I don't think he's officially affiliated with the company anymore, but he is still working on artistic projects, and I think he did contribute music to Abduction. Okay, but it's cool that they have this like, you know, they have a creative leader who's been the through, you know, the through line the whole way, but that they're constantly bringing in new people and it's always interesting when companies get to that point of having the you know, the second generation, the people who are there because they were inspired by the company's product in the first place rather than the fact that they just, you know, they stumbled into a company and they made something for the first time. So I don't need to uh, go through every question and answer here. Um, I think the Mysterium YouTube account will eventually post all of this to YouTube if you want to to see the full interview. 
Um, really, I'll just try and hit some of the things that I found personally interesting or play into uh, Mist and Riven as they were kind of the original classic Mac applications. So the next thing that I that I perked my ears up at was a question about Mist 3 and Mist 4, because these were the two entries in the series that were not developed nor published by Cyan. I think they were published by Ubisoft and maybe developed by Presto Studios, if I'm remembering correctly. And uh, Rand's answer was, we're on it soon. We're trying to get the rights back. And I think that would be uh, incredible. I haven't played Mist 4 or Mist 5. Um, Cyan did come back to create and develop Mist 5. But uh, one thing Cyan has done recently is re-release Mist and Riven and some of the like masterpiece editions onto iOS. So it's clear that they have a team in-house that can do stuff like that. And it might make these older games more accessible to a, a newer, more modern audience. That would be very cool because I know that I definitely never played those. And uh, and I should go back and play Riven because I had it on CDs and that was maddening. And that was what made me quit the game. Not that the puzzles were too hard, but that there was too much, too much CD switching. We'll get to Riven uh, later on in this episode. Um, another question that is probably asked of Cyan every year is what's next? And they answered that they're already working on an entirely new project, completely unrelated to Mist or the recent release, Abduction. And they've decided that they will not tell anyone anything about it. It is going to ship with like no pre-release, no teasers, no anything. And Rand even said like, even if they decide to put up a Kickstarter or other crowdfunding for it, it's just going to say, help make the next Cyan game. No one's going to know anything about it until it drops. Order order this blank box. It comes from Cyan. Trust us. And I think, you know, they're in a position to make that demand. I would certainly trust them. I'm looking forward to playing Abduction when it comes out for PlayStation. I, uh, is, is it on the Mac at all at the moment? It is. I think it's in the Mac App Store. I, I, I would have been kind of shocked if it wasn't, but I know that the... The only place that I ever looked for it was on Steam, and frequently you find some game on Steam, and then it goes, eh, it's Windows only. That would be really getting away from their roots. And it looks like uh, you have something here that indicates that there's still very much a connection to the Mac uh, at Cyan, and perhaps that Apple even appreciates them as well. Yes, uh, there was a long discussion about VR both where does Cyan as a game company see the future of VR? Are they going to bring any of their properties to it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, Rand only like briefly hinted at this, but uh, I definitely missed it at this year's WWDC when Apple was, you know, talking a lot about VR and AR and the associated kits. uh, One of the slides showed a screenshot of abduction like in production, right? Like- yeah. In production running on Mac hardware. And uh, I think we'll, we'll put a link to Rand Miller's own tweet of this in our show notes. And then uh, live on the page for the upcoming iMac pro is a screenshot of like a scene or an area in abduction being rendered or developed or whatever you do. Um, so yeah, Apple is aware that Cyan is still putting out, games and uh even the fact that they're trying to make it work with vr on the mac so there's definitely still a close relationship with the company which is very exciting i feel like you know there have been so many remakes and ports and re-reports and everything of of the original mist but i feel like given the current state of vr technology in 2017 is that a remake of original mist would actually be really good fit because um, so many of the VR games either have to be on rails or have like a weird teleporting mechanic because you can't actually like, like if you start walking around with a VR headset on, you're going to like run into the wall um, and you can't go very far. But you need to have a mechanic for moving through games. And so uh, lots of people's criticism of current VR games that are developed is that like they basically have to put in a teleport button. So you like point in the direction that you want to go and then you hit a button and it takes you in that direction. But that's the entire like that's the entire control scheme for Mist is you face in a direction and you click there and you go there. So it would actually be an extremely natural fit between like the old game design style and what hardware we have now, you know, before we get to the point where you can have like a more natural moving VR experience. Yeah. And uh, 
Of course, this came up during this part of the Q&A, and Rand did not commit uh, to bringing Mist to a VR platform, but he said it's it's clear that that's what Cyan wants to do eventually, is do at least a Mist-like game for the VR platforms. And a direct quote from him is, they don't know if it'll be a reboot or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's fantastic. And I guess uh, your thing about them trying to, quote, get back the intellectual property for Mist 3 and 4 means that they do have the, they do still retain all the rights to original Mist and Riven so that all of those remakes and things that we've seen have had their 100% official blessing and are not just like, resellings of their intellectual property or if they are contracting someone in to do a port or something it's all coming back through them right um kind of going along the same line there was a an interesting question that said or asked them to consider a lot of their games are kind of slower paced and more rel- or more dependent on story and like you said up top introducing mist like just the user being able to explore at their own pace and not have to worry about uh, an enemy off screen hunting them down. And uh, the question was, is there a way in which science style of gameplay can be mixed with what modern gamers expect in a, you know, like a triple A title. And his answer was like, I assume you're talking about shooters. Uh, We worked on abduction for 10 years and we went through many different versions of what the game would be. He said one of them was was a comedy, which I, you know, having not played through Abduction yet, I don't know how that would change, like, I guess the dialogue or something, but I'm very interested in, in a comedic mist. But he said, we also went through a version of Abduction that was uh, referred to internally as Halo meets Mist, where you actually have like a, a gun, it's in your first person perspective, and instead there are still like no other players or even very many NPCs. And it's basically like, if you have this gun, you have this weapon, you're damaging the environment and maybe it has consequences in your ability to solve puzzles. That sounds almost more like Minecraft to me. Yeah. I was thinking portal, uh, but yeah, Minecraft with like, yeah, the ability to damage. But on the other hand, it sounds very unsyan. So I'm not surprised that they rejected it in the end. The majority of this interview did, uh, tend towards abduction because it's it's their recent release and like was just mentioned uh something they spent 10 years working on so i don't need to get into a whole bunch of other uh of the questions that were answered one thing that did stick out to me is uh the question was what is your team's greatest achievement and rand's answer was uh the quality and caliber of a game like abduction coming from a small indie team and that jumped out to me because I mean, I guess, yeah, Cyan is an indie team. It's not Electronic Arts. It's not Ubisoft. It's not even like whoever makes Clash of Clans and all the big money makers on uh, mobile devices. But they are still responsible for some of the largest selling video games in history. And they've gone through their ups and downs to the point where they consider themselves today an indie team, which I I really appreciated hearing that coming from its co-founder. Right. And like, aren't there stories about when they were developing the original Mist, where they were compiling all of their graphical assets together into these hypercard stacks, but then like they were this small team and uh basically like everyone had a you know like everyone had a quadra and then like at the end of the day when they were done working they would basically like farm out all of the rendering to each person's like individual computer to each render one frame overnight because that was how long it took and then like come back and so you know like yeah i think the the thing was that the original mist was put together on this like you know this bank of six quadras or something like that and so yeah, like very small kind of skunkworks indie mentality. And despite their success, they never really wanted to like leave that behind. They didn't want to become a AAA game firm. They wanted to keep creating their artistic games with the comfort of knowing that the artistic genre that they basically helped found was extremely successful and popular. So again, um, there are, of course, many more questions mostly about abduction, some about other uh, cyan properties. Um, 
there were questions about like missed merchandise. Apparently there were, there was at one point a missed TV series in production or a missed movie. And there were questions about all these that didn't really have definitive answers. Uh, and I do believe that uh, eventually the entire Q and a session will be posted on YouTube. So keep your eyes peeled if you're interested in more at the Mysterium conventions, YouTube channel. Yeah, we can link to the channel and then you can see it as soon as it goes up. The final panel I want to talk about from this conference is something that has also become a regular feature at the conference, and it's a presentation from the Starry Expanse team. And I didn't know anything about this until uh, until I saw your notes. So were you familiar with this at all? Uh, only from researching Mysterium like in advance of uh, this conference, and I think maybe I saw something about it when we talked about it two years ago. But yeah, I knew very little. Okay, so everything in the previous panel was all about the official Cyan stuff that's going on. But as we established, there are some super dedicated fans out there, and so there is a big fan project. Yes, and uh, you alluded to this before, where there have been many reboots of the original Myst game. First, there were reboots of the kind of like the fidelity of the graphics, but still in that hypercard engine where you point click it goes to the next card with a new rendering and then there were some releases called real mist which were in real time rendered 3d environments so you can walk you can run in in like a live polygon thing instead of pre-rendered slides starry expanse is a community driven uh project to bring that same real time 3d gameplay to riven the sequel to Mist, the second entry in the series. So there is no official real Riven. Correct. Uh, and they, it's clear that there's some kind of legal issue, but nothing animus between Cyan and them because they were pressed to say like, so is Cyan, has Cyan given you their blessing for this? And they say, we cannot say that, but we, it's clear that we are still working on it. <laughs> <laughs> they haven't given us their blessing, but... They've kind of winked when we asked, will you sue us? That's the kind of the, the, the tone you get. Um, so I guess before I want to talk about Starry Expanse, I should talk a little bit about Riven because, again, I've only played Mists 1 through 3. I've played the first one a bunch of times, Riven the second one a bunch of times, and third one only once. So maybe it doesn't carry a lot of weight for me to say that Riven is my favorite of the five-game series, of which I've only played three. <laughs> Uh, but the leap from Mist to Riven was just mind blowing. Like you said, Ed, it spanned five CDs of pre-rendered graphics. Uh, but the the resolution I think went up a little bit from Mist. The the graphical fidelity went up, and there were certain things that were starting to really break the mold of what HyperCard would allow. Like when you were around water in Riven, in the you know the original shipping release of Riven in the late nineties. The water would move. It wasn't pre-rendered water. And the story, I think, was a lot richer. There were many more live-action performances, uh, and it was, you know, five CDs worth of material, both in terms of, like, the graphical assets, but also the puzzles, the gameplay, the story. Everything was five times greater. And five is the number that matters a lot in the game. Uh, so for a volunteer team to convert a game that was five times the size of Mist, give or take, in scope, uh, to something that is from pre-rendered uh, static images to a fully 3D environment while trying to maintain the same level of graphic fidelity is just this massive undertaking that I still can't even wrap my head around. Yeah, it's it's really quite a lot because especially, uh, just I'm just looking through some Riven screenshots and a lot of this is like, one of the things that was a huge advance from Mist to Riven was the amount and the detail of, I would say, like organic elements in the games and the the realism that was present there. Um, as I recall, there's like a lot of stuff that happens in sort of like a treetop village and like lots of things are made out of wood and there are these waterfalls and rock formations and beaches as opposed to like on Mist Island where like the tr the pine trees are basically just triangles. And so 
if you're presented with just like triangles or just uh, you know, like man-made objects or the, the geometric rooms that uh, are the interior environments in these games, that would be one thing. But to recreate these organic environments with no model other than essentially just a, you know, a flat reference image, that's, that's a ton of work. It is. And it's kind of one of the reasons I dropped off of the series at Mist 3 and didn't play 4 or 5 is because uh, Mist 4 and Mist 5 were fully 3D worlds, like the kind of thing that the Star Expanse team is trying to accomplish. And even though they had the benefit of being released you know, many years after Mist and Riven, the computational power to render environments on the fly as you move around through them still couldn't produce results that were as beautiful as Riven. I think Riven is the the pinnacle of the series in terms of graphical fidelity and the things we were just talking about. The complexity of the organic scene elements uh, is one great example. Um, so yeah, so Starry Expanse has been working on this conversion since 2008, and they have presented their progress updates at the Mysterium Conference since 2010. And they were very pleased to announce that this year, in 2017, their, the demo that they would show as part of their Mysterium presentation would be final content. They, there is an end somewhere in sight. They don't know when it is, but they know that they're, they're starting to like finally lock in some bits. And what they have finished is uh, they've got like a rough version of the initial island. There are five islands in Riven. The island that you start the game on is like roughly finished and I think the third island that you can reach if you play it in a normal sequence is mostly finished. And there's one room on the third island. It's uh, Gen's laboratory. Gen is a character. He's Atris's father that they've fully texture mapped and created like all the little objects on his desk. And they're playing it in you know real-time 3D, moving the mouse 360 degrees. And it looks just like the renders. They have done it. So if they, I don't know how much longer it will take, but it's clear that like they're up for the challenge of recreating the full graphic fidelity of Riven in real time 3D. And they've pulled it off for at least one room <laughs> on, on a five island plus expanse of, uh, of content. But I think they're going to do it. It was very exciting to watch. And you won't even have to switch CDs. <laughs> yeah, that's another thing. Um, the guy who was running the demo had to download the latest build on his computer, on hotel Wi-Fi. And again, this was, you know, me, not even probably like a fifth, not even a fifth of the content. And it was very many gigs. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you won't have to switch CDs, but it will probably be a very large install. Fair enough. So after the demo, um, they also did a Q&A and some of the fun bits of information. This time more about uh, like the things that I pulled out of this were some about the development, but a lot about just like the history or, or little things you might not have noticed about the original Riven game. Some tidbits about their development is they actually started development when they started in 2008 on the Plasma engine. And I hadn't heard about this until they said it's the same that Cyan used when they made their kind of like online multiplayer version of Myst, Uru. <laughs> and I'm laughing as I say this because they realized that this was not going to be the engine they needed because it was meant for synchronous multiplayer and Riven does not have synchronous multiplayer. And they actually ran into problems where people would be like playing at the same time and they would be playing the same instance of Riven at the same time. And one of the first puzzles you encounter in the game is a rotating room. <laughs> and so like one player would be on the inside of the room trying to figure out the puzzle and someone else would be on the outside rotating it to try and get to where they needed to go. And people would get locked in the room. You're not helping. <laughs> You're not helping. So that's really funny. They switched to the unity engine in 2012. And uh, like, that's a, that's a pretty commonly used engine powers. A lot of iOS games. Yeah, exactly. But they have, uh, thrown away that work and are now using Unreal Engine 4, which is the same engine that Cyan used to power abduction. So I guess that's why they're able to say uh, the the stuff we're showing you today will make it to the final version. Like, we're locked in. We're not going to change backends anymore. Yeah, three whole game development engines in one project is uh, it's too, too many. And so now kind of getting into the fun parts of the original Riven game, 
one thing they're realizing is they have to basically architect these islands. They have to map out the entire geometry, not just the kind of like two-dimensional space of what the player can see, but uh, there are there are stairs, there are ladders, like how tall are certain things. And they run into a whole lot of, I forget what it was called, like player mapping or something, because when Mist and Riven are rendered, it's from like kind of a standard viewpoint, maybe someone who's five and a half feet off the ground, you know, kind of thing. But when you're doing just a bunch of static renders, you can kind of fudge that around or you can fudge even greater things like uh, on the very first island in Riven, there's a temple. And the Star Expanse team has realized that Cyan completely cheated because there are ways to see the external like topography of the area where the temple would be on this island. And it's like the Doctor Who TARDIS. The room is so much bigger on the inside because they crammed it with details and columns to make it look more ornate than it could possibly be given the size of the island in which it resides. This is interesting because I was just listening recently to an episode of Reconcilable Differences with Merlin Mann and John Syracuse. And they were talking just randomly about these like crazy fan theories about Stanley Kubrick movies like The Shining and people have like mapped out the hotel and they're like, but this part is impossible because like if you go out this door and then you turn left, then this hallway should be there, but it's this other place. And um, they're like, but that totally doesn't matter. Like that's, he wasn't building a hotel. He was shooting a movie. And like, as far as he was concerned, as long as there weren't like, massive things like massive problems that would pull the viewer out of the movie it's like as long as every scene looks good and is cut together properly like he's concerned about what's in the frame and it's exactly the same thing that's going on here like cyan wasn't creating a 3d model of an island they were creating these individual scenes in the game because that was the model of the piece of art and creation that they were doing and they nailed it because everyone played through Riven. Nobody noticed these little things, or you know, or if you did notice, it didn't pull you out of the game. And everything looked pixel perfect, as you were saying earlier with these scenes. And so it's like they nailed it. It's translating it to something that it was never originally intended to be. That's the issue. There is another area that's like this, but actually has implications for the way the player can move around. It's uh, I think it's the fourth island you get to if you play through the the traditional way, Survey Island. This island is physically impossible. <laughs> um, there's an upper level that has kind of a map of the five Riven Islands and one of the trademark fire marble domes. And then there's a lower level with uh, a kind of a viewport into an underwater, an under-the-ocean uh, cavern. And... Uh, you take an elevator in between these two levels. It's a beautiful golden elevator that works magically and moves you through the water. Uh, and then each level of this island also has its own station for the maglev car that takes you from island to island. And they realize like the lower level of the island is underwater, but <laughs> there's an open air tram station that flies out. So, you know, like, again, that's, it should be physically impossible, but whatever you're, as you're playing the game, in the original release, you weren't taken out of it, even if you noticed this, but it is physically impossible for them to have like one continuous island that you can navigate, you know, without having to break it up with a loading screen or anything. So what they've decided to do is when you ride the elevator in either direction between levels of the island, they're going to reform, <laughs> restructure the island in the background so that it makes physical sense. That actually kind of works. I mean, you know, all the way back to original mist is the notion that like if you flip this switch over here like a piece of the island's shape changes as you move over to go and observe it so that's that's actually a very clever solution because it's very in keeping with the the style of the game and there are many more things like this that they've discovered as they try to map something from a collection of 2D images to a fully realized 3D world um, as well as like some other fun Easter eggy things. And they're keeping track of all of these at their Twitter account, actually at a separate Twitter account. There's a Twitter account for the project. And then there's at Starry Extras, like Extras from Starry Expanse. 
that has a couple things. And uh, one of them that I'll just point out is I think it's more of a bug than an Easter egg that made it into the shipping version of original Riven. But uh, one of the books in the laboratory that they've fully mapped out and textured that I was talking about earlier in the original Riven, in the original Riven has a large question mark on its cover because apparently when Cyan rendered that frame, the file for the, the texture of the book cover was missing so it's like when your internet browser can't find an image and there's a giant question mark. And they never fixed it? <laughs> no. Fortunately, so there's a screenshot that we'll put in the in the show notes. Fortunately, it's kind of like in shadow. So you can't really tell unless you're looking for it. But it's clearly there. And I think that that's hilarious. That's fantastic little bug slash Easter egg. One of the final questions for the team uh, was like, are you going to put your own stamp on this? Like we've talked about, like this isn't an official cyan release. It may have implicit <laughs> cyan approval. Right. Like what what back of a truck on the internet are you going to have to find this from? Exactly. And and like because you're going to distribute it that way, you're probably not going to charge for it because that would be like crazy licensing stuff. Are you going to try and put your own spin on it? And they're very adamant that they're not going to. This is like, this is a labor of love. They all love the game so much that all they want to do is make it more accessible to people with modern machines and just faithfully recreate it. That being said, I'm sure things like the question mark on the book cover will be fixed. And there is this Easter egg that is published on an old, or I guess current, but like a Cyan employee from the Riven development days. And he still has his own kind of like subdomain on the cyan website that has a whole bunch of these things and it's called the east path and it's a a pre-rendered image that made it into some early promotion for riven and i think on like the making of dvd that shows an area that kind of looks like the channelwood age of mist and apparently in one of the maglev train cars you can kind of see where this area would have been in riven but there's absolutely no way to get to it but this is kind of a vexing philosophical question where when you want to make a faithful recreation and you have the liability to like do it quote correctly, are they going to build in this area that clearly science thought about, but never brought in or didn't make it into the shipping version. And they said, they're still thinking about it. Well, I mean, it would also be typical to have an area in a video game that you can sort of walk up to and then just like not actually enter. And so again, uh, you might be wondering when will this be out? When can I play it? And again, the team doesn't know yet. They know that they've they've settled on their rendering engine. They're making great progress in like very basic 3D mapping and modeling. But a lot of the hard work will come into uh, appropriately sizing everything because the viewpoint of the player will stay consistent. And they can't kind of fudge it for small rooms or there are areas we have to climb through pipes and they might have to get creative with how big the pipes are in their version versus how they were represented in the original and things like that. And you may also be wondering, can I volunteer? Can I work on this project? The answer is a very enthusiastic yes. Whether you have experience with 3D modeling or texture mapping or the Unreal Engine, or if you want to contribute towards this kind of initial work that they call camera matching, which is basically going frame by frame, viewpoint by viewpoint, through the entire original mist or the entire original Riven game, seeing where the the player's viewpoint is in the room where you are, and uh, running that through some software that has a basic idea of the game model for the 3D version, so that they can kind of get an idea of where everything should be positioned. Uh, again, that's camera matching. I talked to one of I guess their primary camera managers extensively, Matt Sampson. Uh, again, very nice. Gave me a lot of time uh, just for a one-on-one conversation about this project, and he's doing a lot of that work. Uh, so I think we can link to we'll link to the Starry Expanse project, and I think they have contact information on there if you're interested in getting involved with the project. Very cool. This has been fascinating. Um, I'm kind of jealous that you got to uh, go and experience it. Do you know where Mysterium is next year? I don't think it has been announced, but uh, you can stay up to date. We'll put the link in the show notes. It's mysterium.net. But yeah, it's it's always fascinating to hear these stories about, you know, at the top of every show, we say the Mac community. This is 
like a very small, small subset of the Mac community, but it's obviously an extremely dedicated community. And like you said, Brian, of just like very kind and interested people. So, uh, it's, it's always fascinating to, to find these places where, you know, we, we have our own recollections of what it was like to be a Mac user 25 years ago. And these people, uh, found their own way in and have created their own community. And it's really exciting that it's continuing onward. Yeah. So like Brian said, uh, there will be links to many of the missed Riven abduction, cyan and Mysterium related things in our show notes, which you can find on our website, simplebeep.com. You can also get in touch with us there. There's a contact form. And of course you can find us on Twitter as well. The show is at simple underscore beep. You can also find us individually on Twitter. I'm at Bisuto, B-S-U-T-O. And I'm at Ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.